Hey, Chris Garlock here. Earth Day is coming up this week, and if you're in the D.C. area, Labor is going to be out there at the Fight for Our Future Rally for Climate, Care, Jobs, and Justice. That's this Saturday, April 23rd, 1 p.m. in Lafayette Park in front of the White House. So this seemed like the perfect time to do a little recycling ourselves, and we've dug into our archives for this week's show, which was originally broadcast back on April 22, 2018, and features Joe Uline on the connections between labor and the environmental movement, Saul Schneiderman on Ida Mae Stull, the country's first woman coal miner, and Joe Uline and the Uliner singing, You Can't Giddy Up by Saying Woe and Power. Happy Earth Day. Enjoy the show. Well, you know we're dumping carbon in the atmosphere. It's warming the earth, messing with the oceans, climate change is here. We know what we got to do, leave it in the ground. Look to the sun, feel the wind, and listen to the sound. For you can't get up by saying, whoa, ain't gonna get you where you wanna go. No time for moving slow, can't get up by saying, whoa. Hi, and welcome to Labor History Today for the week of April 22nd. I'm your host, Chris Garlock, and today's show includes Joe Uline on the connections between labor and the environmental movement on this Earth Day. Patrick Dixon's interview with Peter Cole on the IWW's 1923 West Coast strike. Damon Silvers on the arrest of Montgomery Ward Chairman Sewell Avery in 1944 and Saul Schneiderman on Ida Mae Stahl, the country's first woman coal miner. Today's music features Joey Uline and the Uliners singing You Can't Giddy Up by Saying Whoa and Power. Enjoy the show. So uh, today is Earth Day, and uh, we're very happy. Uh, it's actually going to be the, the JoJo show. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. we, we have with us, of course, Joe McCartan, our, our resident labor historian and co-host from the Kalmanovitz Initiative. Uh, but we're joined by Joe Uline. And Joe, why don't you, uh, you wear many hats, but uh, for the sake of this conversation, mm-hmm. why don't you uh, introduce yourself with that particular hat? Okay, well, I'm a founder and president of the Labor Network for Sustainability. We've been around for about 10 or so years now and we're a network of individuals in the labor movement that works with allies in the environmental movement uh, to advance joint uh, common vision with labor and environmentalists and a lot of it's on climate change. Well, so let's just jump right into it, and and Joe, you can jump in anytime too. Uh, Let me just say about Joe that uh, my institution, the Kalmanovitz Initiative mm-hmm. of, for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown, was honored to have Joe as one of our first what we call practitioner fellows, mm-hmm. uh, where he used his time with us to build this dialogue between environmentalists yeah. and labor people that's you know, done a lot to bring those communities together. And that's still going on. It's what we call making a living on a living planet, and we convene gatherings of labor and environmental leaders and activists specifically to talk about things that they often have a hard time talking about in their own institutions. Uh, it's, not a, it's not regular, it's as on an as-needed basis, but we've done a bunch of them and it's been really cool. Well, and, and we wanted to have you in because, of course, on, on Earth Day, um, folks are, are focusing on mm-hmm. the environment yeah. as, as they uh, should. <laughs> Um, but I think for a lot of folks in and outside the labor movement, uh, there's certainly a perception that they're, uh, you know, these are not the same interests. Jobs right. and the environment right. are, yep. um, if not uh, conflicting, uh, certainly competing. Yep. Um, and I think there's some truth to that, but I think uh, it's maybe overblown as well. So mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. Well, I mean, it's understandable. If you look at today's, any, a trade union leader or staff person has a legal duty to represent the interests of those who pay dues to the union today. And they want their jobs protected. So that, it's understandable how you get this, this sort of job protection more than an instinct, it is a, it is a legal duty. 
And I wanted to mention, I mean, yeah. you spent years working, you know, at the AFL-CIT. Yes. You come to this from a really incredibly yeah. strong labor background as well. Right, so exactly. That's one of the interesting things about you is, is you know, working on environmental stuff, coming mm -hmm. out of the labor movement yourself. Right, right, yes. Yeah. So, so it, it, it's about jobs. Go ahead, Joe. No, I was going to say that uh, Joe, not only in his own working life, has had quite an amazing career in the union movement, but who comes from a union family with CIO roots, right? Exactly, so. yes. So. Yeah, and, and that's an important point because the, you know, in CIO uh, tradition, uh, people often referred to CIO as community in operation. Uh, of course, it stands for Congress of Industrial Organization, but the community in operation represented a, a vision of the role of the union in the broader society. And that led leaders like Walter Ruther, for example, at a speech in 1963, he said, what the labor movement is about is the problems we face on the shop floor every morning. But to make that the sole point misses the target mm -hmm. because what good is an extra week's vacation we negotiate if the lake we take our kids to is polluted and they can't swim in it? Right. You know, what good is an extra $100 in pension if the world goes up in atomic smoke? So he had a way of linking shop floor gains with broader issues, including environmental issues. Now, when we were talking before we, we started uh, the show, you were mentioning, of course, you know, Earth Day started back in 1970. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize that these efforts to, to connect the labor movement mm -hmm. with the environmental movement went back that far. Yes. Can you sort of talk about that a little I bit? I can. Um, well, first of all, the first uh, Earth Day event before the big one was at Black Lake, the UAW's education I center in uh, upstate Michigan. And that was kind of a big, it was a big gathering of labor and environmentalists, and it was to plan the big day. So when the big day happened, it happened with labor support. UAW, AFSCME, I mean, Dennis Hayes, who's, mm -hmm. you know, sort of the leader of Earth Day, um, he, what he told me and will tell anyone is it would never have happened had it not been for the UAW and AFSCME. So, you know, that the roots go deep. Very, very cool. You know, and that's, um, it's a really remarkable and almost kind of counterintuitive thing, I think, for most people, especially today. I think they're not used to thinking about labor and environmentalists, in fact, as close allies, but mm -hmm. as Joe points out, that was the case in 1970. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it's all the more remarkable when we look at this history of labor and environmental cooperation that what Joe said at the beginning, unions are about trying to you know, maintain security and a standard of living for their members. They're about protecting jobs in some ways. That even despite that, they've had a long range vision over time led by people like Ruther that um, have contributed a lot to the environmental movement in the country. In fact, even, you know, crucial, crucially. Yeah. Well, you think about Earth Day, 1970. What came immediately after that was the creation of OSHA, where labor and environmentalists work together, the creation of EPA, labor and environmentalists working together. Ma these are major, Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, all happened in the few years following Earth Day. So there are pretty incredible gains that came out of that. Hmm. So why would you say, and again, I think you know, coming out of the labor movement and then working you know, with your, as uh, you know, where you are now, what, why is there such an idea that, that these are, are conflicting, opposing points of view? You know, it's jobs mm -hmm. or the environment, that you mm -hmm. can't have jobs and the environment. Yeah. Well, it's a false dichotomy. Um, even though it's understandable, the job protection from the labor movement, uh, but it's not accurate, uh, simply because uh, there are tons of jobs to be created in our economy. And so to only f to focus narrowly on one project that might cause environmental damage, to say that is, that's jobs versus environment is a very narrow way to look at the issue. And when I say jobs being created, I don't mean just the clean energy jobs. There mm -hmm. are those, but everybody knows that they tend to not be as good at jobs as the ones right. in the fossil fuel chain. 
they're not even close, really, right. if you look at it. In terms of pay and benefits. Yeah, and pay stuff. and benefits and other protections. They're mm -hmm. not even close. Mm -hmm. you know, I met recently with the head of a local in California represents refinery workers, steelworker local, old OCAW local. He said, look, you know, my guys working at that refinery, it's mostly guys, you know, they're making $100,000 a year, mm -hmm. more with overtime. So, you know, you can say you can install solar panels mm -hmm. gonna make for $15 a year. an hour, $18 right. an hour. It, 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 there's a big, we have a job to do to make the jobs of the future good jobs and union jobs. Right. I mean, one of the things that I was thinking, and we've talked a lot about uh, this in this podcast, Joe, uh, Joe McCartan, yeah. <laughs> um, that oftentimes when you see these conflicts uh, between workers, it is either an intentional or uh, convenient uh, byproduct of, of actions by the employer. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm thinking that, uh, you know, certainly it's in... I can think of, of mm -hmm. uh, you know, certain bosses who you know would love this narrative of mm -hmm. you know, uh, of, you know, having the the building trades against the environmentalists. Right. That, that would play well sure. for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, they do love it, and they do spin it, and uh, they have a strat. The American Petroleum Institute uh, has to a name strategy one. <laughs> to do just that. So yeah, right. they're definitely they, doing it. They want to keep the progressive community divided. Right. And uh, I remember in the last presidential election, you guys will remember this, I'm sure, when Trump, I think, was in Kentucky, I forget, where, where the coal mine operator actually told his workers during a shift to go stand behind the yes, president <laughs> or right. the, mm -hmm. the candidate, right. you mm -hmm. know. Uh, so, I mean, there's very clear uh, support from um, some of the leaders of that industry to, to try to promote the kind of division mm -hmm. Joe's talking about. Well, one of the things I'm reminded, since the two Joes are here talking, <laughs> when I did my uh, practicum fellowship with Kalmanovitz, I did it around the idea of what does our nation do as a nation when we're confronted with a huge problem. And our history is we've created national programs that got us out of the Great Depression, that won World War II, that built the, UA, U, the, the highway system, that uh, got us to the moon. These all took national programs. And so I studied that while at Kalmanovitz with the help of some research assistants there. And my idea was that if we're gonna lick climate change, um, we need a national program to do it. And that's something where the laborers union and I agree that it's gonna take a national program that everyone gets behind. It's in the AFL-CIO resolution on climate change, which they passed at their last convention. Um, I think it's the only way. And right now, we don't have that. We don't even have an international. We have a week of the Paris Agreement, but it's not enforceable. It's voluntary. Uh, so all the action is happening at the states and cities, which means the environmentalists are going at it project by project. Mm. pipeline by pipeline and that is not really the way to win this thing we need to figure out a way to get a new politics so we can go for a national program to address climate change well and it seems to me too that when that when you do i mean strategically it seems like a mistake but it also seems to me that when you go project by project you know, you are looking at specific jobs, and so that there, then there are communities mm -hmm. and and potentially unions or certainly industries where people are like, well, you know, these jobs as opposed to yeah. moving it up the food chain. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, kind of. And I mean, that, so the people going after those projects are doing it because the projects are damaging right. to global warming and climate change, right. not mm -hmm. because they want to keep people from working. But what they don't, what they say is, well, there's not that many jobs here in their short term. Well, that that not only misses the point. That's offensive to someone who works in the trades where every job you have is temporary. Right. And not only always, that, always. the way you qualify for benefits is by number of hours worked in a quarter. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know what I say to my environmental friends. Don't ever say that. Forget that talking point. It, it's hurtful. Mm. Uh, and I explained to them why, and they had no idea. 
Right. They don't know that that's the reason. So, you know, we we have some work to do, but we can do it. Right. Well, let me let me ask you. So, this, so that's that's something you say to environmentalists yeah. to help them yeah. understand. Because if you don't know the trades, you don't understand how that works. Yeah. What's something that you say to folks in the trades mm -hmm. about you know people that they probably think of as tree huggers? Right. Well, what I say to people in the labor movement, right. trade okay. trades included, right. is the climate change is the real job killer, yeah. and it's here, and it's happening now. Um, and for in the trades. It's, you know, every day that the temperature goes over 95, work hours get reduced, jobs shut down. So you're losing that, those hours to get health care or pension and pay uh, by that. When the waters rise, even a little bit, jobs shut down. Transportation mm. lines shut down. Mm. Uh, so... Climate change itself is the real job killer. There was a special on cable TV last year called Years of Living Dangerously, seven or eight segments on climate change. First mm -hmm. one opened with the story of a plant closing in Texas uh, that was a UFCW-organized uh, meatpacking plant. And it went down because of climate-induced drought and they couldn't keep the cattle wow. uh, there. And so not only did the plant go down, but so did the whole town, because the whole town was there because of the meatpacking plant. So climate change itself is the real job killer for people in the public sector. Mm. This is interesting because they, don't, they often think, well, this isn't really our issue. So I say, well, what's your reason for existing as a union to negotiate good contracts? What do you need to do that? Healthy state and local budgets. They're being decimated right now in front of our eyes mm -hmm. by climate change. Just look at the state yeah. budgets in the western U.S. that are dealing with forest fires. Right. Ten times higher budgets now than even five years ago. So climate change is the job killer. Yeah, I think uh, Joe makes an excellent point. And then you think about the extreme weather we've seen in places like Houston or mm -hmm, Puerto Rico mm -hmm. in the past year yep. with the devastation to the economies of those regions mm -hmm. that, that was suffered. And, and very often the kind of jobs that get created in response to that are there's a lot of uh, exploitation that happens in yep. the wake of those yep. storms. After Katrina, there was a a lot of abuse of day laborers and immigrants and guest workers mm -hmm. and other folks. and in that situation. Yeah. So Joe McCartan, you'll be interested. Uh, Joe Uline and I were talking uh, just before the show. Uh, he's been doing some traveling and some, some briefings. And uh, tell, mm -hmm. tell, me, tell him the story, because uh, I think Joe McCartan will be interested in the story of uh, when doing these trainings uh, about yeah. the stories that you were telling yeah. and what you found. Well, so we've been doing these trainings. They're a full day, mm -hmm. deep dive into the labor movement, sort of a labor movement 101, and we're doing it for environmental groups. Wow. So this one in San Francisco was for Greenpeace, mm -hmm. 350.org, Rainforest Action Network, and a couple others. And I, so it's history, structure, function, purpose, how to talk to, how to engage with, mm -hmm. all of that. So I start with history, and I sort of planned a quick trip through the history of the labor movement. The highlights. The highlights. You could have just played our podcast. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. Well, and um, that wouldn't have been a quick trip. But you know, I made a made a little PowerPoint with right. the highlights, and the people were riveted by that. They had yeah. no idea of homestead they had never or been taught those things, haymarket probably. or the yeah. Colorado or I mean, right. they knew. So I really found myself. I've got to stretch this out because they mm. were engaged. Wow. And them understanding this is important. Oh yeah. For for them to engage with unions now. Right. So I'm doing more on the history, <laughs> less on the structure. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it surprised me, but fascinated me that that's what grabbed their attention the most. Oh, I think that's <coughs> so interesting to hear. And it kind of illustrates a principle behind this whole podcast, I would say, which is that history and engaging people with their own history is often so empowering, mm -hmm, you know, and mm -hmm. especially when you can bring together narratives yeah. uh, so that the, the environmentalist you're speaking to can start to see yeah. in the history of the folks they might have once looked at, at as adversaries mm -hmm. and see a lot of commonality, yeah. a lot of opportunity to build common ground. 
Well, the other thing I was telling Chris is, so over, I had a sabbatical last year, 10 months, and I used a lot of it to go through about 70 boxes of files in my basement oh, wow. that I had to categorize and get to the archives. Right. And so now, at the University of Maryland. At the, yeah, they're all there now. But I went through these, and it, you know, every file drew me in because this yeah. was my life. <laughs> but I, I identified, got in 10 months. That's I know, <laughs> uh, 12 right. efforts, file references on 12 efforts since Earth Day to bring labor and environmentalists together. Wow. Everyone accomplished some good stuff, like we talked about Earth Day yeah. and what happened. But then they all fell apart because of a, a job fault line. Uh, so uh, coming out of Earth Day, after all that good stuff, there was the snail darter. You know what that is? I remember yeah. the snail darter. Yeah, but, but, a, but tell folks what the snail darter. Well, it's was. a little fish about the size of your pinky in the perch family, mm. and it was there was a project to build a dam in Tennessee. Good jobs. Mm -hmm. Good, the best jobs around Power for the people. Mm -hmm. Best jobs around, and that snail darter was perhaps going to be go extinct if the mm -hmm. dam was built. And I remember at the time, all the labor mm -hmm. people were like, "Screw the snail, snail darter! darter. <laughs> what, what, what's that?" Uh, right. So anyway, so th so coming out of that, uh, at the Industrial Union Department, we created something called the OSHA Environmental Network, which mm -hmm. recognized the linkage of plant in plant health and safety to community health. And we had this thing going great guns, projects in 22 states. Wow. We won right to know legislation at the state level and then at the federal level. So the people had the right to know what they're working with and what's coming out of the plants into the communities. Then acid rain happened. Mm. And we had to take that thing apart because acid rain was a real threat mm. to mine workers and sure. other energy workers. So. I, uh, I present that part of the history as well in these trainings, which is also interesting to them because it's the history of their two movements. Right. And they didn't know that there were all these efforts that accomplished great things, but then fell apart. And so by identifying what caused them to fall apart, I think can help us think about ways to prevent that from happening in the future. I love hearing that as a historian because it, it really shows the, the use and the value of history and memory, mm -hmm. going back, finding those patterns and finding what went wrong yeah. that can help yeah. prevent that from happening again. Exactly. I was thinking too that uh, this must be exactly what's happening with fracking now, yeah. which is this huge industry and there are these huge environmental concerns mm -hmm. and you've often seen this sort of the same the same storyline playing out where yep. you've got folks who are very concerned about the environmental impacts of fracking, but yep. it's also, it is totally, you know, uh, revived uh, industry and is th these are, not, yep. some of them are union jobs, some of them are non-union, but right. they're, they're good paying jobs yep. Yep. Uh, as well. Well, the thing about fracking <clears throat> and with a lot of the, the infrastructure work like pipelines, so fossil fuel infrastructure in particular, which fracking is a part of, uh, is they do have immediate environmental impact in the areas where they're taking place, mm -hmm. but they also have huge emissions, yeah. greenhouse gas emissions. And that's, we're at a point now with climate change where we don't have any time to waste. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll give you one statistic, and I follow, I'm not a scientist, but I follow the science closely on this. New study out of the Scripps Center for Oceanography, which is UC San Diego, says there's a 5% chance that by 2050, this planet will not be able to sustain human life. Oh, bad news for us. 5%. Wow. Now, that's low probability, but still, it's you don't like, want <laughs> yeah. Would, would, you know, what I say to people who, and I have yeah. had people say, well, that yeah, 5%, you know, I say, well, would you get on an airplane? They told you as you boarded, <laughs> we have a one in 20 chance of going down. Yeah. Next flight. Yeah, yeah. right. Or I'll, put, I'll walk. Right. Or, or put right. your children or grandchildren on that plane. Yeah. You know, which so, affect what people be doing. We really wow. need to, we need to look at all of this work differently because of climate change which we weren't thinking about in 1970. Mm -hmm. But, you know, here we are, and we're at the precipice, and so we're really forced to use this history in a way that helps us get to a common vision so that we can address this problem in a way that's good for workers and good for the climate. So we're going to wrap up, but before we do, as long as we've got yeah. Joe here, yeah, we're oh not yeah. going to ask you to sing. <laughs> 
But, you know, I've been to enough of your performances that I know well that, uh, you know, you're not a historian, but you you certainly know the history of your songs, mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. music, and it's always it's always appealed to me how that is such a part. I mean, you don't just sing a song. You, you always, mm -hmm. I don't know yeah. if you're just do, telling the story because you need to adjust things, but I don't think so. <laughs> I, I, think, I think you're telling, but tell yeah. me, why do you, why do you and talk about that a little bit, as long as we've got them here. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting, it's a great question, and it's an interesting one in the band. You'll notice sometimes when I'm telling a story, you know, my drummer will start like tapping on the cymbals, you know, it's like, uh, okay, Joe, <laughs> let's play the song now, you know. Uh, for me, every song tells a story. Yes. Mm. Every song, at least the songs we choose to do. Um, and I feel that people need to know that story. Right. Uh, so if we're singing, you know, Coal Miners, written by the wife of a coal miner in the early 40s in Harlan County, I'm going to let people know. That she wrote this song and you can hear her preaching to her husband about the conditions that this capitalist system has put us under. Um, you know, and just song after song, <clears throat> You Can't Giddy Up by Saying Whoa is a new song that I wrote about the immediacy of dealing with income inequality and climate change. And so I'm going to let people know that. So, you know, every, and it's, some are original and some are, you know, they're songs from great songwriters, Bob Dylan, Steve Earle, and others, I want people to know about where that song came from. It, it seems, and, and again, because this is, you know, to me, goes to the reason why we do this podcast. I mean, there's plenty of performers that get up and they sing, they're great, song, they, they're great singers, they're great performers, and, and nothing wrong with that. But to me, uh, I, I love that that your songs are grounded, and I like learning that. And, and 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 even if I've heard you, you know, or even if I know the history, right? Um, you know, seeing other folks, it reminds me, you know, of, of the groups that you were just talking to, where mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. a history that certainly you know I know well, but not everybody does. And it seems, yeah, like that's that's really a part of your whole yeah. holistic approach. Well, you know, I'm doing a concert, and this this will be heard the day after. But um, I, the story is interesting. On the 21st, my daughter Anna Grace and I are doing an Earth, Earth Day concert at Zed's Cafe in Silver Spring. And when I posted on Facebook, I said, why am I going to sing a bunch of coal mining songs at the Earth Day concert? Oh, great. Which I am. Cool. So, so why? And I always have. And the answer is, these people spend their lives working inside the earth. Right. Inside the earth. And a lot of other workers make their livings working on the earth. They're farm workers, they're food workers, whatever. This, to me, when I do a Labor Day concert, I might sing some environmental songs. I'm darn well going to sing labor and coal mining songs at an Earth Day concert. That totally makes sense. Oh, yeah. All right, well, Joe Uline, thank you so much for being here, and uh, thank we you. should have you back. I don't think we have to wait oh, until the yeah. next Earth Day to have to have you back. <laughs> yeah, so. I can think of about a dozen <laughs> other subjects to talk to Joe. Well, about. thanks for having me, and I'd be happy to come back anytime. This is fun. All right. Yeah. Well, the rich are getting richer all across the land. Poor get poorer, and the middle class is slammed. We know what we got to do. To solve this one as well Tax the rich, give the workers a raise Tell the bankers to go to hell Oh, you can't giddy up by saying woe Ain't gonna get you where you wanna go No time for moving slow Can't giddy up by saying woe I'm joined here by Peter Cole And Peter's a historian at Western Illinois University In Macomb, Illinois And Peter's the author of Wobblies on the Waterfront Interracial Unionism in Progressive Era Philadelphia, and most recently, the co-editor of Wobblies of the World, A Global History of the IWW. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Patrick. It's my pleasure to be here. All right. So I've got here, 4th of April, April the 25th, 1923, which is 95 years ago, if my mathematics is correct. The IWW Marine Transport Workers begin a West Coast strike. Can you tell us about that? What's going on there? Of course. Well, so first of all, the Port of Los Angeles is in a place called San Pedro. It's, it's spelled San Pedro, but the local pronunciation is San Pedro or Pedro. Um, 
And so it's on the west coast of uh, Southern California. LA is actually 10 miles inland. Um, LA is not the most important port in the west coast at that time, San Francisco is, but um, it is a major port for all of Southern California. And Wobblies, members of the Industrial Workers of the World who are nicknamed Wobblies, had been organizing in San Pedro actually very early. Um, even the legendary Wobbly composer Joe Hill, a Swedish immigrant, actually got his IWW card while um, living in Southern California. Um, but uh, Southern California is important because it's actually one of the most conservative parts of the country in terms of its anti-unionism, led at that time by um, the very influential newspaper, the LA Times. And so it's actually a big industrial center, um, Hollywood's still sort of in the future, um, and um, Wobblies are organizing. They're organizing um, actually up and down the West Coast, but um, including in LA. And in uh, late April 1923, they shut down the Port of Los Angeles. Thousands of workers um, refused to handle work. They're looking to expand essentially worker power. They're also protesting against the California state laws that actually have criminalized their union called criminal syndicalist laws that many Western states had enacted in the World War I era to really go after the IWW because of its radicalism. And um, so the strike actually then um, is strongest uh, in uh, LA, but it actually also involves some other workers in some other West Coast ports, um, as well as even on the East Coast. Um, and in some ways, it's sort of the last major strike of Wobblies um, in the 1920s uh, on, in the far West. How does it end? Well, there's a fascinating story because the famous novelist Sinclair, uh, Upton Sinclair, sorry, um, yeah, lives in Southern California. He gets very involved in the strike um, uh, at a place called Liberty Hill, which is in the town of San Pedro. Um, thousands of people show up to um, hear Sinclair speak. Uh, Sinclair famously reads um, from the First Amendment of the Constitution and is arrested while being while reading the First Amendment, which of course is the Free Speech Amendment, and um, that raises the profile of the strike further. Um, there's the Ku Klux Klan, which is very strong in America in the early 20s, also gets involved as an anti-union, anti-immigrant organization because many of the workers are immigrants. Um, Sinclair actually goes to prison for a few days. He later writes a, a song and a play about um, that experience. Um, but ultimately the strike after about six weeks is defeated by employers. And it won't be until the mid early 1930s, about another decade, that we see union power rising again in Southern California, um, as well as other parts of the country, 1933, 34. Um, and so it's really uh, very important in Southern California history, not just um, sort of IWW or labor history, um, and then it's the beginning of what's called the open shop era, this very anti-union time um, in the 20s and early 30s. When historians have written about uh, longshoremen and their unions, they've often uh, characterized those on the west coast as radical and those on the east coast as more conservative and mob controlled, but you found that's not always the case, right? right. Well, of course, there's both uh, in most places, right? Um, but um, later in the 1930s uh, and 1940s, um, uh, the West Coast dock workers organized and split away from the East Coast dock workers. And so to this day, there are actually two unions of dock workers in the United States, the West Coast International Longshore and Warehouse Union, the East Coast International Longshoremen's Association, and the Gulf is part of the ILA too. And so... Um, it's a bit overdone because there are some militants and, uh, in, on the East Coast, but um, there's no question that uh, the West Coast Union generally is far more progressive, far more open to um, ethnicities and, and races as opposed to sort of Irish Americans and sort of white born, native born Americans, far more likely to sort of um, advocate a, a radical agenda, for instance, um, but also far more democratic um, uh, in their sort of operation within their union. Um, I study the West Coast Union, for instance, and I can go to their archives because they have a public um, library that anyone can go to. The ILA literally has no public access, right? And so if transparency is some component of democracy, not just in terms of political, but also other institutions, it's a really good example of how different these two unions are. That's from the 30s onward, right? Like uh, in the early 20th century, I wrote a book about the Philadelphia Wobblies who um, 
were very left-wing radical, very racially integrated, very open to immigrants, and, um, but dominated the Port of Philadelphia for a decade um, in the 19-teens and early 1920s, and Philadelphia then was among the five largest ports, five busiest ports in the United States, even though now it's not an important port of call. So how were, how were the IWW in Philadelphia able to create uh, a race, uh, an interracial union, if you like, in an era when you know, Birth of a Nation is a bestseller, you know, one among the most popular films in the cinemas? Yeah, well, that's a great question and a good example. Birth of the Nation is the best-selling silent film from 1915 when it's released until the 30s, right? Um, and the Klan has millions of members, not just in the South, right? Um, employers especially like racism and xenophobia because they can play workers off of each other. In the United States, a very diverse country in the past and the present, it's often employers who use race or racism or xenophobia as a club, right, to sort of keep workers divided and therefore unwilling to organize together. That results generally in lower wages, longer hours, unsafe working conditions, the list of problems go on, right? Um, Philadelphia's waterfront was in 1913, um, one-third African-American, one-third Irish immigrant and Irish-American, and one-third East European immigrants. Um, this is the, the dream workforce for an employer, right? They hired also sort of um, segregated gangs, so they would um, hire a black gang and an Irish gang and a Polish gang, and then they would basically whip these people on the job by saying, hey, look, the Poles are working harder than you, right? And so they would get more work out by um, playing on people's prejudices uh, in, in, you know, not just in hiring, but also once even in the workplace. Um, the IWW, um, was anti-racist because they were socialists. Um, not all socialists are always anti-racist, but the, the philosophy of socialism is that, you know, all workers um, have to identify first and foremost as workers, and the enemy is not your fellow worker who looks different than you, but in fact is your employer. Um, the preamble of the IWW begins, um, you know, the working class and the employing class share nothing in common, right? Um, that, and so, unlike some left organizations, but uh, the Wobblies are not alone, but the IWW was really committed to anti-racism. But what's interesting is that in Philadelphia was the example of, their most successful example of putting that into practice, right? Um, now they did have an African-American leader, a man named Ben Fletcher, um, who was already a member of the IWW, but in 1913 when workers went on strike, and many strikes were not organized by unions, not unlike the West Virginia teacher strike of recent times, um, that, uh, you know, um, the Wobblies quickly organized this 4,000 workers on strike because um, their anti-racism and anti-xenophobia appealed to this very diverse workforce, but they were also able to convince them that this was in their best interest, right? And so um, Local 8 was their name uh, within the IWW, and uh, they were not the eighth local in the union, but for, anyway, they were called Local 8. And Local 8... Um, was able to then, once they got everyone together and was very inclusive in its leadership and membership, were able to um, then apply other IWW tactics in order to increase power. Um, one classic way that dock workers and sailors use their power is because of their ability to um, manipulate cargo um, in an industry transportation where time is money automatically, right? And so the phrase, the ship must sail on time, so if dock workers refuse to work in the middle of the shift, that costs the employers a lot of money who are trying to turn around a ship, right? Um, and so dock workers who are militant, they're not the only militant workers, um, but if you're willing, right, um, you could basically not only work to be inclusive, you could work to, say, increase your wages, um, be less abused on the job, that sort of um, good result, right? So short-term gains as well as sort of long-term agenda, right? Um, I mean, the long-term goal is, you know, revolutionary change, but before we get there, um, well, we can also do things like get paid a bit more, have a less safe, more safe workplace, but also that you have to basically employ us. You can't just employ anybody, you gotta employ only members of our union, right? Um, and so over the course of 10 years, there's no other example of the IWW having such extended power um, in such an important workplace for, uh, uh, in the United States. It seems they were really able to understand the different points of leverage they had. What was their ultimate undoing? Well, um, not unlike in 1923 uh, in this sort of uh, San Pedro strike, 
Um, you know, there's multiple factors. Some you've already mentioned, um, racism. Although the Wobblies are always fighting against racism, and although most of their members actually are African American, um, you know, it's a time in America of rising racism, right? Um, after World War I, there's um, uh, more than a dozen riots in different cities when whites attack black people, for instance. It's also a time of rising nativism or xenophobia, right? Um, laws are passed shortly after World War I. Um, so they're facing those sorts of troubles. They also face an, an increasingly powerful and organized employing class of shipper companies that um, are um, better organized than they had been that allows them to use more power. They have on their side also the federal government, which during and after World War I brutally attacked um, uh, Philadelphia dock workers, but the entire IWW, but five leaders in the IWW, including Ben Fletcher, are in federal prison because of their supposed opposition to the war, World War I, these espionage and sedition laws. And the rival conservative union, the ILA, is happy to work with the federal government and employers to try to get the IWW out of Philadelphia um, in order to subsequently replace them as they do by the late 1920s. Um, and so, um, and there's also communists involved, right? Because it's the rise of the um, Soviet Union and actually the communists want to pull the IWW into their fold, but when they fail, uh, there's actually a whole period, 1920-21, where there's this really nasty um, sectarian struggle um, with, uh, within the left, right? And so there's about seven important reasons why um, local aid is weakened so that by 1923, um, they are no longer able to sort of represent the interests of uh, Philadelphia dock workers. So it seems they're right about a lot of things when other unions aren't just sort of looking at where we are today. How, how many... You know, how, how, how much do you think people have, you know, taken the lessons from the IWW in that period? Well, I think that in a number of ways, we are in a place in uh, 2018 that's not so different than um, the 1920s. Um, most notably, that the laws that were passed in the 1930s um, that um, gave workers in the United States the right to organize and strike, as well as some others, have been so weakened by uh, a combination of uh, corporations and government assistance that um, the labor regime that we operate under in the United States is essentially so weak. Employers have so much more power. They have so many more lawyers. They can exploit the system in so many ways. The Wobblies weren't under the illusion, really, that the state was a neutral party or even facilitated worker rights. Um, and so they didn't trust the state in the same way that many of us can um, be, understand that we might uh, sort of forget. Right. Um, so that, for instance, many workers like in West Virginia go on strike in 2018, they weren't allowed to strike. Right. Um, they were actually breaking the law when they organized that strike. That was the same as the pre-1935 Right. Um, when the IWW organized in Philadelphia in 1913 or when these guys in San Pedro in 1923 struck, that actually it wasn't illegal, but you didn't have the right to strike. Right. Which means that employers could just fire you. Right. Um, because there is, in fact, no protections. Um, considering how weak labor law actually has proven to be union membership being so low, it really you have to go back to the 1920s to find equivalent low numbers in, in union membership. It's worth thinking about what the IWW might offer American and other workers today. Um, yeah, most particularly that, um, you know, don't trust the state or the court institutions. Right. If you have power, it's on the job. That was essentially the central idea of the IWW, that workers have power on the job, not at the voting booths, not in the courts, all right? Employers and the rich have that power. And so while we are somewhat similar, similar to those West Virginia teachers, or for that matter, West Virginia miners in the distant past, right? Who basically, if they had a grievance, they wouldn't sort of try to sort of talk about it through lawyers. They would say, this is our complaint. And if you don't believe us, we're gonna strike. For Wobblies, the strike was always the most powerful weapon and arguably that's what we're seeing again today. This was great, Peter. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Hi, this is Saul Schneiderman calling from Tacoma Park, Maryland, uh, with a labor history moment for the week of April 22nd. On April 23rd, 1980, Ida Mae Stoll died. She was recognized nationally as the country's first woman coal miner. And the research uh, on America's first woman miner was done by David Corbin, a noted West Virginia labor historian. And he tells the story that in 1934 in Ohio, a state mine inspector entered a mine 
and discovered that there was a woman there mining coal. He ordered the woman out, and he declared the presence of a woman in a coal mine to be an extraordinary danger to her fellow miners. That woman was Ida Mae Stoll, who in 1906, when she was a young child, followed her father into the mine and and helped her father uh, as best she could, and continued as a working coal miner. She allegedly said, uh, it's my desire to use a pick handle because it feels better than a broom handle to me. Now, Ida May, like a lot of coal miners, was a fighter. So after she was booted out of the mine, she hired an attorney, and she filed for reinstatement, and she became somewhat of a cause celebra. She attended the National Women's Party Convention in Columbus, Ohio. She was, her fight was reported on by the New York Times. And um, eventually, her lawsuit was successful, and the eviction order, which was issued by a state mine inspector, was overturned. She entered the mines again and, in fact, retired uh, from the mines in, um, as a coal miner in 1944. And it turns out, unfortunately, um, after her husband uh, either passed away or she was divorced, um, she became penniless, and she died in poverty as I mentioned, on April 23, 1980. But she left an important legacy for today's women miners. That was Ida Mae Stoll, America's first woman miner. When all is said and done, we want more done than said. Seems like in this world of ours, you just can't get ahead. We bailed out those bankers real quick when they messed things up. The rest of us left holding the bag for me, I've had enough. For you can't get up by saying, whoa, ain't gonna get to where you wanna go. No time for moving slow, can't get up by saying, whoa. Sorry, Chris. I'm, uh, I'm Damon Silvers. I'm the policy director of the National AFL-CIO, America's uh, Labor Federation, uh, representing 55 uh, national unions and 12 million workers. And like a lot of us, you have uh, an interest in uh, labor history, and I know the particular one that we're going to do today, uh, you know something about it. This happened on April the 26th of 1944, and it involves uh, a department store, which, uh, well, I always heard it referred to as Monkey Ward, and I didn't know what they were talking to. <laughs> so why don't you go ahead and take it from there? Sure. Well, you know, Chris, this story really re requires that uh, our listeners uh, really think back to a country that was both very different and very similar to our own, uh, America, in, in 1944. Um, so um, at that time, uh, the United States had two dominant national retail companies. Think of today Walmart and Amazon. Uh, in those days, it was Sears, Roebuck, and Montgomery Ward. Uh, and they were largely mail-order uh, uh, companies. They, they, while Sears did have stores around the country, most people dealt with these companies by mail order. And so, like Amazon, right, they were basically companies with warehouses and distribution systems. Both headquartered in Chicago. Uh, and uh, Montgomery Ward uh, uh, had a big warehouse and distribution operation in Chicago where they put you know packages on trains. That was how it, that's how it worked. And, and uh, the Montgomery Ward's CEO was a man named Sewell Avery, and Sewell Avery was kind of the Koch brothers of his time. He, he um, was very very conservative, hated the New Deal, and hated unions. And he was sympathetic uh, to fascism. He was the one of the major funders and political powers behind something with a somewhat contemporary ring called the America First Committee. And oh, the America First Committee was the committee of uh, uh, influential Americans, people like Charles Lindbergh, who thought the United States should not be uh, in World War II and who opposed Franklin Roosevelt's effort to aid uh, the Allies. Uh, the America First Committee disbanded after uh, Pearl Harbor, uh, but uh, it was it was an atar it was although some people involved in it were pacifists basically, it it was the money and the and the and the political power behind it came from people who were sympathetic to Hitler and Mussolini, and so uh, so this this was kind of the man who Sewell Avery was, 
In World War II, there was something called the War Labor Board. And the War Labor Board functioned kind of like the National Labor Relations Board today. Uh, uh, in that, but it had jurisdiction over it, it, over companies that were engaged in the war effort, contractors for the war. Uh, and most during World War II, most companies in the United States, one way or another, were involved in war production. And Montgomery Ward was no exception. It had it, it actually manufactured a few things in Chicago uh, that for the war effort, and also did I think some logistics for the war effort. So, uh, and the War Labor Board uh, had pretty broad powers to preserve to keep labor peace uh, in the in the war industries. Uh, and the basic deal, the way, the basic way the, this worked was that it was the policy of the federal government that war industries should have unions, should should be organized, should have orderly collective bargaining, uh, but essentially should um, not have. Uh, but but collective bargaining should be in support of the war uh, of war production goals. And so there was a lot of tension in that uh, between workers and their unions and co- contractors and the government over wage suppression and other things. But the federal government was very strongly in favor of having an orderly orderly resolutions to these things and not having strikes. And that's why they liked the government favored uh, companies recognizing uh, their workers' unions and bargaining with them. Mm-hmm. So uh, the Retail Clerks Union, which is a predecessor organization of now the United Food and Commercial Workers, Retail Clerks organized uh, the workers in um, at Montgomery Ward. They had a union election, uh, and then they went to bargain with the company. And the company, uh, Montgomery Ward, refused. Uh, the CEO of Montgomery Ward basically said, you people have no, you know, the federal government has no jurisdiction over me. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't buy into any of this. Uh, and and I'm not bargaining. And this is during the during, this is right during the war, right? This is during the war. This is 1944. It's the height of the war. It's the height of the war. And so uh, the 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 War Labor Board sent a, a senior uh, Roosevelt administration official to Chicago to try to resolve this with uh, with Sewell Avery. And Sewell Avery said effectively, and I'm afraid I, I don't have the quote quite right, and I'm not sure you can play it on the radio even, but <laughs> Sewell, Sewell Avery said, I'm not bargaining with any goddamn new dealer. Okay. And, and sent, him, sent him home. And so after that, the War Labor Board kind of felt, as I, I'm sure the National Labor Relations Board often feels, the War Labor Board felt that their authority was being messed with. Right. And so uh, they took the actions that they had the authority to do at that time, which was they sent uh, they uh, sent um, uh, agents of the War Labor Board to um, in, you know with, a, with an order saying you know you must bargain, and they were also uh, thrown out. They were also rejected. Uh, at the same time, they went on strike. There was a strike in Montgomery Ward. So the workers went on strike. So, so the workers so, 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 went on strike. So the, so the the labor board, which is charged with keeping the labor peace during the war, keep all focus, right? Tell but, them to bargain. He, he throws the, the 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 emissary out. He sends back folks. He he throws them out. And meanwhile, the workers go on strike. Right. <laughs> so the war labor board is part of the war production operation, and they have you know broad powers. Uh, and so the next step was um, they sent uh, MPs. Uh, from, <laughs> this sounds like something that might go on today, right? The National Labor Relations Board trying to get a very powerful company to follow the, to bargain right. in good faith, right? Uh, and uh, and the company refuses, and there's a lot of delays. And this is and and meanwhile, workers are on strike, and they're not sure whether their government is with them or not. And the, the the lawyers for the employer are basically saying, well, you know, you can get away with, the, you don't actually have to obey the law. You can just get away with delaying, and you know, all this probably sounds very familiar. But it, but at mm-hmm. this, but at this point in the story, it takes a, a turn. It takes a turn into territory that uh, uh, we're not familiar with. Let's put it that way. Okay. Uh, the the um, the War Labor Board uh, uh, gets an order. Uh, and and I, I'm, I'm not familiar with the precise legal details of how this was possible, but it, it had to do with the War Labor Board being a quasi-military organization. The War Labor Board gets an order to have uh, 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 to have Sewell Avery, the CEO of Montgomery Ward, one of the richest and most powerful men in the country at the time, gets an order to have him arrested for essentially refusing oh to file. 
the refusal for refusing to file the follow the orders of the board and for interfering with the war effort. Wow. Remember, Sewell Avery is someone who actually sought actively to prevent the United States from, from fighting fascism. So there was a certain, I think, sense that he might actually want to want to interfere with the war effort. Anyway, they got an order to have him, to have him arrested. Uh, and much as uh, a federal court today can have someone who refuses to obey a federal court order uh, arrested. Uh, and uh, but the order was served on Sewell Avery uh, by the by the military police from the uh, from the uh, from the uh, the naval base. This is a very large naval base in Chicago during the war. It was even larger. Uh, there, there, uh, so, the, so MPs from the from the, from the naval base were sent to to Sewell Avery's office to arrest him. You're talking about the guys with the hats and the belts and no, the guys. The, the, no, full no, the combat troops, right? Men, uh, a squad of men in full battle gear, uh, helmets, wow. rifles, uh, combat troops. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. So, and, and where do they where where do they find Sewell? Is he like well, Montgomery well, Ward? Well, Mon Mon Montgomery Ward's office is in a you know a list uh, office building on Michigan Avenue, uh -huh. smack in the center of the business district in downtown Chicago. And so, uh, and, uh, they, <laughs> they go to his office, uh, these, these, uh, soldiers go to his office and they, uh, and they serve a warrant on him in his office. And he wow. refuses to go with them. Sue Avery refuses to go with them. And so they handcuff him to his desk chair. And they carry him in his desk chair down ten, down some number of flights of scares. I don't know how, exactly how many. Uh, and onto Michigan Avenue, where they put him in a jeep and take him to the naval air and take him to the to, to the brig uh, at the Navy base. So and, there's uh, actually a picture of this. I've seen this photo. In fact, well, I happen to have this picture in my office. Uh, there's a picture of uh, uh, the the Sun Times, Chicago Sun Times, takes a picture, which is now ironically owned. Uh, Partially owned by the labor movement, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, the yeah. Chicago Sun Times photographer takes a picture of these of this uh, on the streets on Michigan Avenue. The the MPs look quite pleased with themselves. Uh, <laughs> uh, so Avery is wearing a three piece suit and like one of like one of those uh, watch chains. Uh, Very he, he really looks just like the he looks just like the villain, and it's a wonderful life. He looks yeah. just like Potter. Uh, you know, uh, Mr. Potter. Uh, yeah. It's a wonderful yeah. life. Uh, and, uh, and, um, the, um, and so, uh, he, so they carry him, and so they take this picture and they take him to the brig. Uh, in time, uh, his lawyers get him released. And then an effort is, and then there's an uproar. The picture, the, the photograph is sent all over the country by wire service. And uh, so every newspaper in the country shows this picture of what happens to you if you violate, if you refuse to bargain with your workers' union. Right? You, what happens to you is that you essentially are treat, treated like a traitor. You are arrested by the military police uh, and, and hold off to a military stockade. Right? That that's you know, even if you're the richest and most one of the richest and most powerful men in the country. And what then happens is unfortunately not as great a story as, as the drama on Michigan Avenue, which is that uh, the strike, uh, the, there's an effort, there was some political pushback uh, from Republicans in Congress and from the business community and from the Hearst, the right-wing newspapers of the time. Uh, imagine, you know, Fox News, but in the newspaper form. Right. And, and, uh, and, uh, the strike is the, is settled on terms that are not terribly favorable to the union, um, but it is settled. So Avery is eventually released in the brig, um, but the photograph lives on. And in my view, as a as an amateur historian, this is a critical moment. This is the moment at which it is becomes really crystal clear to American business that the federal government, in its total war mobilization form. Right, stands behind workers' right to organize and strike. Right, that if you just, this isn't a question of like if you refuse to give people the the pay increase they demand, right? But if you right. refuse to participate in an orderly collective bargaining system, the full weight of the federal government's going to fall on your head. Right? That's what that photograph means. Mm -hmm. Even though the details of what happened to Montgomery Ward after that were not, you know, 
were, you know, ambiguous at best, right? The symbolism and the imagery were, you know, that refusing to participate in the new in the in the National Labor Relations Act, the War Labor the War Labor Board, the the orderly system of collective bargaining it created. If you refuse to do that, if you refuse to negotiate with your workers when they choose to form a union, um, if you refuse to obey the government's orders, you know you know the, the you will be treated as an enemy of the state. Right. That 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 message uh, was driven home by that photograph uh, to the leaders of American business, and I, and symbolically, I think it's the, it, it 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 marks this moment when American business shifts from its 1930s type stance of you know mounting machine guns on factory walls and and uh, you know uh, uh, private militias and, and 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 you know violence and repression directed against trade unions. To a uh, uh, to a posture of well, negotiating with unions is part of what, just what we do, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And it opens it begins the era in which uh, there's hot, relatively high levels of union density in the private sector, where wages move with productivity, where the gains of uh, technology are broadly shared. The era of the broad American, the era of the working class as middle class, right? And by the way. Uh, the era in which African American and Latino wages rose more more rapidly than they have at any other time in American history, the period the twenty years that follows this moment. This and this era is bookended by PATCO, when the federal right. government fires strikers. Right. This is right. A, this episode is the symbolic beginning, and PATCO is the symbolic end. And that's going to be my question because one of the things that we always do, you know, in this labor history podcast is take a look not only to remind ourselves of what happened, but also to try and put it in the context of today. So you've got the bookend of this where the federal might is behind workers to PASCO where Reagan turns it against workers. Um, this is a long time after PASCO. Where, where do you, where, you know, telling the story of, of uh, you know the arrest of the head of Montgomery Ward in, in 1944, you know bringing that up to today. What are you know, and sitting where you are at the AFL-CIO, what do you see? Well, I, I think that we still are in the Pacto era, in mm-hmm. my view. Um, I think that uh, President Clinton and President Obama, at various times, suggested that they thought that it was important that workers have the right to organize. Um, uh, you know, even Donald Trump has, on occasion, said positive things about unions. But the reality is, is that the none of them, uh, in any real serious way, signaled. And oh, and I should say, of course, that we've had very, you know, we, during, under President Obama, we had a very effective National Labor Relations Board, mm-hmm. but it was operating inside a uh, sort of system uh, that sent the opposite message. Right, so that so the National Labor Relations Board sought, you know, with a great deal of vigor to enforce this country's labor laws, uh, but there was no sense, I think, that the overall power of the federal government was going to be was going to be deployed behind it. Uh, in fact, there was a real issue there with uh, uh, even the friendliest administration officials, you know, doing things uh, with like companies like Walmart. At the very moment that they were flouting the, the country's labor laws, and having the president and other high officials of the government, you know, you know, palling around with Walmart executives at the same time, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We're still in a regime in which it's in which the the real message our federal government sends is that it's okay to violate workers' rights. Uh, it's not really a serious matter, uh, and. Um, that's something that we're going to need to change in this country if we want our economy to work and uh, and uh, and to be consistent with our democracy. All right. Well, Damon Sirius, thanks so much uh, for. Let me do that again. Well, Damon Silver, thanks so much for uh, for reminding us of this uh, wonderful story and putting it in perspective. And thanks for being on Labor History today. So you're very, you're very welcome, Chris. People should Google the people who, who uh, like this should Google. Uh, the photograph, Sewell Avery, uh, Chicago Sun Times uh, photo, and uh, and take a look at the photograph themselves. It's it's uh, worth a, a thousand words. Terrific. Thanks again, David. 
All right, take care. All right, you bet. Take care. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. Labor history sources include Today in Labor History from Union Communication Services. Music this week included Joe Uline and the Uliner's live version of You Can't Giddy Up by Saying Whoa and Power. We have links to the complete songs and videos on the Labor History Today podcast page. And as always, we really hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of Labor History Today. Please spread the word by liking us on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you hear us. This has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history, and see you next week. Come and open up your eyes. Power, we stand and fight together. Next in line, you fight the power of one. 